Uh, today, we continue our series in the parables uh, that Jesus tells in the book of Luke. And um, much like last week, it's a, bit, it's a different parable, but uh, what's sitting in the middle of the parable is the same thing, a feast. Uh, so that's why we watched the video that we did. Um, many people helped to pull that off. Uh, in case you were running, Justin wrote that. And I just think it's so beautiful. Thank you, uh, all those who participated. Uh, let me pray and we'll get into our text. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your word, uh, Lord, that um, it's power, Lord, that we see it's not just some ancient uh, book, uh, that it's not just dead, um, but Lord, that uh, your spirit promises uh, to combine with it, uh, to do all kinds of things uh, to our persons. So Lord, I pray that those kinds of things, conviction and uh, comfort and assurance, uh, Lord, would uh, come uh, as we look at this passage. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 5, uh, we will start with verse 27 uh, and end in verse 39. After this, he, Jesus, uh, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding feasts, wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does... He will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. The word of the Lord. Uh, if you were reading in your Bibles, whether you're on a phone uh, or a uh, hard copy, you probably see that there's two different chunks here, that they're divided uh, by uh, modern uh, categories. The first one talks about a feast with Levi or Matthew, and the second one probably says something about parables. But really, this whole scene happened right in one place. This is one conversation. And so I think it's important for us to look at it that way, and it all starts with Jesus calling Levi, the tax collectors, to be one of his disciples. Now, Levi has another name. His name is Matthew. This is the dude who wrote the gospel. This is the dude who's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors, if you've been around the church, you know they have a really bad reputation in Jesus' day. Now, no one aspires. Uh, I've never heard anyone say, when I grow up, I want to be an IRS agent. So it's not like we have this overly fond view of being a tax collector. 
but we don't necessarily see them as immoral. We probably just see them as boring and unfortunate. It's just a, a, a natural thing that has to happen when you have a society uh, to pay for, right? But in Jesus' day, it was very, very different. Tax collectors had been recruited, and they'd been recruited by the enemy. They'd been recruited by Rome to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And they got paid by anything on top of the tax rate that Rome collected, and that's what they used to line their own pockets. So it was a great gig if you didn't care about being liked but loved money. And needless to say, tax collectors would have been one of the very last groups that any of the Jews would have expected Jesus to call to be a part of his inner circle. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And if that's what the run-of-the-mill Jew thinks, put that on concentrate, and that's what the religious leaders think. These religious leaders might as well have PhDs in Messianic studies. And so you see in verse 30 that they grumble. See, what they are seeing in Jesus doesn't match up for what they're expecting for their coming Messiah to be like. To them, to feast and party with tax collectors was to condone their behavior. It was to side with injustice. But right alongside this anger and this grumbling is something else. I think it's curiosity. And that's why they ask the question that they do in verse 33. They're really curious about why Jesus doesn't make his disciples fast. Now, fasting was a big deal back in their day. It was prescribed in the Old Testament. Therefore, fasting was an important part of life for anyone who took their faith seriously. And on top of, what, on top of that, what made them even more confused is that Jesus' very associate, John the Baptist, along with his disciples, they practiced fasting too. And if you know the whole of the Gospels, you know there are times that Jesus fasted. He fasted when he went in the wilderness for 40 days. So how can fasting be practiced by Jesus, prescribed in the Old Testament, embraced by Jesus' ministry partner, but then Jesus doesn't hold his disciples to the same standard? Well, here's why. It's because it's not really about whether one fasts as being the main point. The main point is about what lies at the foundation of how these people view their whole lives. That's, that's what's really at stake. See, the Pharisees were used to doing the ritual, rituals like fasting for the sake of the ritual. The Pharisees were all about external activity. They were all about going through religious exercises. For them, it was all about doing certain things and not doing certain things in order to gain favor with God. And what Jesus is trying to show them is that that's, the answer is never external. The answer isn't about stopping fasting and starting feasting. And that's a quick fix. And don't we all love a quick fix? Don't we all just want something practical, something technical, something pragmatic, just, just, a, just a simple solution? Just go to counseling and I'll be better. Now, I'm all for counseling. I'm a big proponent of it, practicer of it, of myself, receiving it. But sometimes it's too simple. Sometimes we just think, man, if I would just start working out, my life would go better. 
If I could just find the right medicine, my life would be better. If COVID would finally just dry out, my life would be better. But Jesus is always about doing something deeper in us than giving us a quick fix. And the deeper work takes place not out here, but in here. Because this is where we change our conception of what God is like. See, A.W. Tozer, pastor in Chicago in the mid-20th century, he died in 1963. He wrote this masterful little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you need a book to read this summer, I highly recommend. Us pastors are insufferable book pushers. But here's the famous quote. It's, at the, it's the, literally the, the, like the first paragraph of the first chapter. And here's what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So for the Jewish religious leaders, they can't conceive of a God who's more likely to enjoy food and drink with sinners. They're much more likely to conceive of a God who's a taskmaster, who's all about being serious and keeping up the externals. They simply view God wrongly in this text, and so do we. See, it all starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. I mean, think about what the serpent actually said when he approached them. He said, he asked this question, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's his question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, for one, God didn't say that. The serpent exaggerates the prohibition by extending it to all trees when in actuality the prohibition is just don't eat from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's actually much more permissive. It's like, eat from all of these trees. Enjoy them like crazy. But just stay away from this one. But see, what the serpent's really trying to do is call God's goodness into question. He's essentially asking, what kind of God would deny you pleasure and joy if he really loved you? So she, Eve, lets the serpent's question change her view of God, and that's when she falls into sin. The moment that she thought that God's commands were not for her good was the moment the battle was lost. And so what's happened is that we have inherited Adam and Eve's spiritual DNA. We, too, are much more likely to imagine God to be someone he's not. We're likely to question his goodness question his willingness to be with us feasting rather than see him as someone that we do things like fasting for. See, to think of God as someone to be enjoyed and think of him only as someone to be served, that is what's natural for us. 
See, just about everything in our world reinforces the idea found in most religions that the main motivation in life is to do the right thing in order to avoid punishment. Lately, I've been driving around with my kids, seems like incessantly, when my kids were really little, you're just stuck in the house. These little things just sleep all the time, they eat every, all the time. They're, it's impossibly mobile when your kids are really little. At least it was for me. And now the kids are older, all I do is drive them around. That's what your parents did for you when you entered adolescence. And lately we've been driving around and Audrey constantly is like, Dad, you're going over the speed limit. Dad, you're going over the speed limit. The speed limit is 25, not 32. You're going to get pulled over. And I said, Audrey, I don't care if I get pulled over. (laughs) But see, what she is picking up on is that she knows if you do the right thing, you will avoid punishment. But I want to propose a different way forward. The way of grace. We can do it by looking at all places at the New York City Public Library. Recently, I I read uh, that the New York City Public Library eliminated all late fees. Late fees had been instituted in their library system in the late 1800s, and they'd just been rising ever since. In fact, before the pandemic, if you had a fine of over $15 in the New York City Public Libraries, you weren't allowed to check out a book. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, late fines seem necessary in order to motivate people to return their books on time. But COVID made them reimagine the fee system. And during these months of partial to full lockdown, the library had tens of thousands of unreturned books. And then they had limited access, they had limited hours, and the libraries were barely used even when they were fully open. So they eliminated fines in an attempt to up the traffic. And guess what? It worked. Their goal was achieved. And what happened was unimaginable. They started having things not just returned that were checked out shortly before the pandemic. They had stuff that was returned up to 100 years ago. And here's what the president of the library system said. He said, we learned that we could adjust our budget to do everything we needed to do and cover the lost revenue of not having fines because we're not in the revenue generating business. We're in the encouraging to read and learn business. And we were getting in our own way by making people feel shame. Isn't that how we think about God? That he's going to fine us? He's going to shame us if we don't dot our I's and cross our T's? I think that's how we think of God. I think that's how our unchurched friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors, I think that's how they think about God. So what do we do when that's how we conceive God to be like? Well, we do just what the patrons of the New York City Library System do. We stay away. We hide. And it's not till we learn that we can show God all of our wrongs, that he already knows all our wrongs, and he's not going to shame us for them, that's when we begin to change. And see, that's what Jesus is getting at with this string of three parables in verses 36 to 39. The first one is about a garment. A garment's got a hole in it. 
And to patch the hole, a new piece of cloth is used, but doesn't work. The new patch can't integrate with the old fabric, so it tears it off and creates an even bigger hole. And the question is, why not just get a new shirt? Well, here's why. Because we're accustomed to the old one, and we can't seem to give it up, even though we need to. Second parable is the first of two about wine. See, wine was the drink of choice for people in the ancient Near East, and not because they were alcoholics. It's just that grapes were really easy to grow in their climate. It was also because water was dangerous to drink because it was dirty and could make you sick. And you have goat's milk. And you have no means to refrigerate goat's milk. And who wants to drink warm milk in hot weather? So Jesus is using this metaphor because they know a lot about wine. A lot more than me and you. And what they already knew was how wine would be fermented. And it was fermented in these animal skins. They call them wine skins. And essentially these wine skins are just a leather bag. That's all it is. And you've got to understand how fermentation works to really get this parable. You have to understand this fermentation process. Just just take sauerkraut. Take kombucha, which if you've never seen how kombucha is made, I don't know how anybody drinks that stuff. It tastes terrible, but then you see that living thing inside, and you're like, you want to drink that? But if you're going to make sauerkraut, you're going to make kombucha, then you can't just have a normal jar with a normal lid. Because during the fermentation process, there's a ton of carbon dioxide that's released upwards. And if you don't have anywhere for that carbon dioxide to go, the jar is going to blow up and there's going to be shards of glass everywhere and and, and kombucha everywhere and that weird growing thing inside of it everywhere. And you see, as the product, whether it's kombucha, whether it's wine, whether whether it's sauerkraut, it begins to expand and contract with the temperature. So this glass jar, if that's what you're going to use, you've got to have a lid with holes in it. And so with wine, you have this wine skin, and it's perfect for fermentation because there's these microscopic holes in the leather that allow it to breathe. The flexibility of the wine skin lets the wine expand and contract during the fermentation process. But after the fermentation process is over, the skin's been stretched out. And it can hold the wine that's been matured within it, but it cannot handle a fresh batch of wine. Because there would be no room for it to expand and contract, and it would bust the wine skin, and you'd ruin the new wine. So you need a new wine skin. You need a new shirt. You need a new wine skin. And then the last one, verse 39. Verse 39 is about... It's about that most of us have a tendency to think that old wine is 100% of the time better than new wine. And what Jesus is challenging here is their presupposition. He's not just saying that every move towards progress, every move towards innovation is always his way. He's just saying that it's possible that new wine can be better than old wine. He's really saying that he's the new thing and he's preferable to the old See, you just put all three of these parables together and they're trying to tell us that we need to change our conception of God. 
We need to change it from being a God who requires us to fast and instead wants us to enjoy him around a feast. And this isn't going to take just a a little adjustment, a little fine-tuning. It's not going to come just with reading a book or two, even though I pushed one on you moments ago. It's not going to come with going to a retreat or attending a conference. No, no, no. The way it's going to change is by throwing out the old, the old garment, the old wineskin, the old wine, and receiving the new garment, the new wineskin, the new wine. See, this old way of relating to God One that relates to God with severe discipline. One that relates to God with being overly proper. The one relating to God about being religiously intense. The one relating to God about abstaining from as many pleasures as possible. The way relating to God that just keeps up this appearance of being pious. All of those ways of relating to God will choke out life altogether. Because if you just think of God in this way, you've got a narrow heart. You're distorting the character of God as being your father. And when you're broken by sin, when you're full of shame, when you're feeling weak, when you're conscious of your failure, you need the gospel. You need the gospel of the Father's infinite love for you. And you need not just to know it, you need to feel it. See, we don't just relate to God as one brain to another brain. We relate to God as a whole person to a whole person. And Jesus knows that. He's trying to get you to feel his love for him. He's courting you here in this text. Did you feel it? I mean, look at his invitation to Levi. Now, in modern day, if the Messiah comes, especially in America, uh, he would be handing out contracts. Will you be my disciple? Give me these things, and I'll give you these things in return. But Jesus doesn't hand Levi a contract of what it means to be a disciple. doesn't give him a job description. What Jesus does is that he shows him what it's going to be like to be his disciple by celebrating his commitment over a meal. Because he's trying to show that being a disciple is more about being with Jesus than doing things for Jesus. And then in verse 35, you see what Jesus calls himself? Verse 35, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And when he does that, Jesus is saying, I'm the perfect spouse. I'm unconditionally committed to you. That's the depth of my love for you. I'm your bridegroom. And then you've got the parables. The parables in verses 36 to 39 are really all wedding metaphors. It's very likely based on our context that the garment means a wedding garment. It's very likely that the wine is associated with a wine used. Now I know that weddings are big celebrations. They're, they're bigger today. I mean, the, the weddings that I now get to officiate and all of the planning, all of the events leading up to the main event, are much more intense than, the, than 17 years ago when I got married. But you know how it works. You have a lot of people there. They're all wearing their nicest clothes. Many of them have a fresh outfit. Most of them have spent some amount of money on the bride and groom as a, as a gift. The host of the wedding spends an inordinate amount of time, an inordinate amount of money to host you well. Why? Because this is a great joy. Somebody's getting married. 
Now, I, I've, I've heard many of you criticize this whole industry. I have too. But let me tell you, weddings in Jesus' day were much bigger deals than even weddings are for us today. They lasted for at least a week. There were meal after meal after meal after meal. Because it was a festival. It was a celebration. And you put all this language of feasting and weddings together and you begin to get a whiff of the extravagant love of Jesus for you. See, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is hard. Jesus does call us to pick up our cross. It does come with sacrifice, but that sacrifice must be framed within a life of celebration. And let me tell you, there's a lot to celebrate. Because Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we don't have to fear death because we've been given eternal life. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we don't have to wallow in shame because we've been forgiven. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we don't have to be alone because we've been adopted by a loving father in a family with millions of brothers and sisters. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we don't have to be bored. We don't have to be apathetic because we've been given a mission to see the kingdom of heaven brought to earth. This is exciting news. This is worth singing about. And I pray that us as a church, Hope Presbyterian Church, that we are never known as spoil sports. I hope we're known for our ability to celebrate. Because this is only fitting for the Christian. Let's pray. Our Father, would you make us a joyous people, a celebratory people. (laughs) A people who know, just like you did, how to have fun. No one ever said that uh, people just accuse you of having too much fun. Lord, I, I pray that uh, that same would be true for us. Lord, that you help us. We need you. In Christ's name, amen.